Okay, there's only one new handout for today. It's the uh, the map. But does anyone need any previous lessons or the lesson for today? Lesson two. So we are in the book of James. We are in verse number one, and we are looking at the author and the audience of this epistle. And we concluded a couple weeks ago that the author of this epistle is the brother, half-brother of Jesus Christ, James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Then we began looking at the audience. Who, to whom is James writing? And you'll notice in verse number 1 of James 1, the address is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And last uh, Lord's Day, we considered that phrase, and we looked at it in a historical and a technical way. And if we were to define this address strictly historically and technically, historically, the 12 tribes and the 12 tribes are the 12 descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob whom God named Israel. So that is the physical descendants of Abraham. So if I look at it in a strictly historical and technical way, the 12 tribes describes ethnic Israel. Dispersion is a technical term that's used going back to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Um, we could even go into the Greeks and the Romans, but particularly the Assyrians and Babylonians. When Israel is conquered and they are repopulated into other countries. So the term dispersion in the Bible is a technical term. It's only used a couple times, but it's a technical term to define the descendants of Abraham who do not live in Palestine. So if I look at the text in a strictly historical and technical way, the, the letter is addressed to the descendants of Abraham who do not live in Palestine. But we started raising questions on that. Uh, are, are there other ways that the 12 tribes are described in the Scriptures? Are there other ways that dispersion or diaspora may be used in the Scriptures? rather than strictly in that very, very narrow way. We looked at the book of James somewhat, and we noticed some of the, the Jewish or the Hebrew uh, aspects uh, of the book, but we also noted that the book is also very Christian, and that James, in fact, is writing um, to believers in Jesus Christ. So, And, and we, we looked in uh, chapter 5 at the term ecclesia, which is the... Is, Greek for assembly, and that can be used in a civil way, describing a, a civic gathering, a political gathering. It can be used of people in the synagogue, but it is a very peculiar word used of the church, of a local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in James 5, when you have the statement that if there's any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the ecclesia, it's, it's very clearly, I think, re referencing a Christian church, a local church. So we have a lot of Christian aspects of the book as well. So we left off last week at 1 Peter, and our, our question was, does 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 shed any light, help us understand who the book, is, who the book of James is written to? Now, if you, turn to, if you turn to 1 Peter for a moment, 
you'll notice that the address is really very similar to the address of James. And in fact, this is outside of John. These are the only two references in the New Testament to the dispersion. So we have a lot of similarities between James James's address to his audience and Peter's address to his audience. So look at the first Peter for just a moment, chapter one, verse one and two. And the question is, does this shed light on James? So what's one of the before I read it, what's one of the primary principles of interpreting Scripture? A basic principle. Pastor Tyler. Uh, scripture interprets Scripture. Interprets scripture. And we use clearer passages to help us to understand less clearer passages. So we have in 1 Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So we have a very similar language here. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So that's the way Peter opens his book. Now, I gave you, you have a map, and on that map, it, it lists these places that are mentioned in 1 Peter 1. What do you notice about these places? Think Paul. This isn't Paul's journeys, but think Paul. Where did Paul go on his missionary journeys? Particularly, we think down in the area of, uh, of Asia and Galatia. Now, did he preach to Jews there? Yes, he did. He went into synagogues very often and he preached. But he's preaching the Christian message. And in those cities, churches are eventually established. That was his goal, was to plant churches. So a lot of the places that Peter is addressing are places where you had churches that were developed uh, from really the missionary journey of Paul. And then we begin to look at 1 Peter itself. And then one of the things we notice in 1 Peter is it too uses a lot of Jewish analogy in the language. Look, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And beginning in verse 4, uh, read down through verse 12. Brother Matt, Matthew, would you read that for us, please? First Peter 2, 4 through 12. And coming to him as a living stone, uh, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this June they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a 
people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, evildoers they, may be, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, thank you. So we have, we have a lot of uh, what we call Jewish analogy here. Um, we have a temple, spiritual house. We have a holy priesthood. We have the offering of sacrifice. We have people called a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, uh, and sojourners. So these are terms that have a lot of Hebrew uh, meaning, connotation. The question then is, well, is Peter writing to basically a Jewish congregation or Jewish listeners? And... The answer on that is split, but we start looking at, at uh, matters like uh, back in, uh, let me see here, one one eighteen, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Well, we could say that Judaism now is futile. But Judaism wasn't futile. It was God's ordained way of worshiping God. And it stood until Christ came and replaced it. Or fulfilled it, I really should say. Not replaced it, fulfilled it. So it's kind of hard to think Peter would be writing of his tradition, his Jewish tradition and calling it futile because it's exactly what God prescribed. This is what he prescribed on Sinai and it stood for hundreds, thousands of years until the coming of Christ. We look at um, uh, the, this, their ransom from their feudal ways inherited from their, from their fathers. Uh, look at Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. I think I have that reference correct. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paganism, that way of Gentiles was defined in the Scripture as futile, vain. And so here in Peter, he's referring to that of the past and he says it's futile. And so it really seems to take that Gentile cloak on it, what Peter is describing here. So he's writing to... Gentiles, and I'm not saying there's no Jews, but but he's writing to Gentiles as, as well. And then we we go to uh, chapter two of First Peter, verses eleven and twelve, where and again I, I realize that you can wait this this one way or the other. I understand that, but he urges them as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage which wage war against your soul. Well, it was the Gentiles that were known for the passions of the flesh. You read the Pauline epistles. And this is what he's constantly addressing himself to. And that they are to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Um, 
again, that you, some could say, well, that's Jews living among Gentiles. Well, maybe so. But it's also Gentiles who are converted to Christianity living in their places, and they want to live a life that honors Christ uh, as well. Um, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 in Peter. I think this one, at least in my thinking, is a little clearer. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, if he's writing to Jews, it seems strange that that's the way he would address them. But it's Gentiles, the way you used to live before you were converted. You've lived, you've lived long enough in the passions of the flesh and the sins of the past. You've lived long enough that way. Don't live that way anymore. That's is the way I would render that verse. Um, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. Well, it's hard to imagine that Gentiles are surprised if Jews don't join them in this way because Jews live their very isolated life, very separate from the societies they're in. And so again, you look at that and you go, well, obviously Peter seems to be addressing predominantly Gentiles. And then I think, okay, well, the book opens the same, well, not the same way, but very similar, using some of the same language as the way James opens. And then I go, well, we've already answered this last week. James, no doubt, is addressed to believing Jews, but it's also addressed to believing Gentiles. It's addressed to Christians. And the separation that existed is to no longer exist, but now you are one people in Christ. So he's addressing uh, believers. So the question I had on my notes is, is more than, and I'm getting in, I know a little bit to some technical matters here, but part of what I, the reason I spent this time doing this is to help you how you go about studying the Bible. And the question I have here is, is more than a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. That's a lot of words, I realize. Mm-hmm. Hermeneutic is the way you go about interpreting the Bible. And some people say, well, it says what it says. Okay, it says it's addressed to the 12 tribes of dispersion. So it's addressed to Jews who don't live in Palestine. Huh. Does that really answer it? No, it doesn't. Because we looked last week uh, that uh, the children of Abraham are people of the faith, Jew and Gentile. That's descriptive of the, des- of the descendants of, of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, that people who believe. So I need maybe a little different view and understanding when I come here, and that view would be called a redemptive historical hermeneutic. Um, the question there would be uh, what is the central message of the Bible Old and New Testament it's not a trick question Christ and Christ on the road to Emmaus started talking to the disciples and he opened up the law and the prophets the Psalms all the scripture 
and he told them about himself from those different places in the Bible. Uh, so when I look at the 12 tribes of Israel, does it have any spiritual significance? And if so, what? Does the term dispersion have any spiritual significance? And if it does, what? And is this just vivid imagination that reaches these conclusions? Or is it based on Scripture on Scripture on Scripture? Is there a biblical motif pattern that describes a Christian as a pilgrim? And then you think, whether it's right or wrong, because we get a lot of bad theology this way, but whether it's right or wrong, it's not, it's not my question here. Are there, how, how, do, how do you see this seeping into Christian hymnology? Think of different Christian hymns that are based on the Christian motif of a believer being a pilgrim seeking a homeland. There's a lot of them. I am a poor wayfaring stranger comes to my mind. I stand on the banks of Jordan, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. Um, there's, there's song after song after song after song that uh, I think lend themselves to this motif. So let's review questions four through nine, then we want to move on in our closing today. Um, what is meant by a literal historical grammatical interpretation? Anyone? Someone? Brother Drew? And, and that meaning what it says, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I hope you got all that. I'm not going to try to repeat it. Sure. But how would such an interpretation explain James 1b? And the key there is on literal. How would it explain James 1b? That's Tyler. That's it. So if that's my approach to Scripture, I probably have come to James with the wrong approach. Need something a little, little fuller. I need a redemptive concept, Christ. Okay. Um, how does, and I, well, I think we probably answered all this last week, but how does the New Testament, and I really could say the Scripture, but primarily the New Testament, how does the New Testament identify the descendants of Abraham? I'm sorry? Different ways. Different ways? Give them to us. A couple of ways. Well, I mean, you have um, Jesus when he was talking to some of the Jewish people. Uh, they said they were descendants of Abraham. He acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. But then turns around and tells them that if they were from Abraham, they would do what Abraham did. Mm-hmm. So there's different, different ways that uh, so, children and descendants. So the, the actual physical descendants, that's one way. 
But when you get to the New Testament, it, it seemed, the weight seems to be that there's something bigger and greater than that. Pastor John? That's right. And, and so the emphasis there is of faith. That's the way you describe them. Um, again, however, they are described, as Brother Drew said, they are described as physical descendants, but it tends to weight it. That's uh, bigger than that. It's more than that. That's not spiritualizing. A lot of times people say, that's just spiritualizing. No, it's not. It's just simply reading the New Testament and seeing what it says. And we looked at that before, I think, last week at Ephesians and Galatians and other passages. I'll not repeat all that. Uh, Okay, that's enough on that, I think. Unless you have any questions on that section. Questions 4 through 9, you have any questions or thoughts? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly of the Jerusalem Council date right off the top of my head. I should know. But I would think it would probably come after that. Does anybody know the Jerusalem Council date? He said that. I think the Cornelius, that's recorded in chapter 10. Yes, I think it was. Wasn't the, the 14 or 13 or 14? Chapter? On, on the council? Uh, 15, I think. But in relation to when James is written. Yeah. So I was kind of wondering if James could have been a result of like, the council encouraging that, so, or that might have shed some light on whether it's more directed to Jews or Gentiles. I know I've read some on that, but I just can't recall all I read on that right off, Josh. But I, I, I tend to think that the consensus would be after the council. But I. Um, okay, let's move on then. Okay. What? Yes. 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 And from this side of the that promise from the New Testament after Christ standing. Then we look at you know, the, the people of God will be of every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe, and we go, well, that's, it's obviously been fulfilled. Um, so here's the question. Um, this is question number 10. Why does it matter? We've, we've spent a lot of time and ink here on, uh, we spent two weeks on this question. Why does it matter who James is addressing? I could have just simply stood here and said to you, James has written to believers and gone on into the book. But I've spent two weeks, three weeks actually now, trying to dig this out a little bit. Why, why does it matter? Definitely how we look at the Word. And then you, then you begin to think of all the theological, even political, economical emphasis that can go into um, a view of Israel that probably is not aligning itself with what the, what the Scripture teaches 
about the genuine nature of Israel. <clears throat> Geographical boundaries, wars are fought. Billions of dollars are spent. Political parties run on this. And you go, a lot of times when you hear all that, you just kind of scratch your head and go, wow. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is what Brother Rick said, and that is, how am I? How do I go about when in my own personal Bible study or listening to preaching or teaching? How do I go about listening with a discerning ear and mind and heart, Pastor John? If it was written to ethnic Jews, then it's it's meaningless to us. It would be just another writing that we could maybe go pull some principles out of. Yes. But it wouldn't be authoritative yeah. because we're not ethnic Jews. Well, I don't know. I'm not. Ethnic. <laughs> I don't think there's any in here, but okay. I have a long quote here, and what I what I had put on my note was to understand the identity of Israel is broader and more inclusive than the, the physical descendants of Abraham, and to understand that true Israel consists of all believers. That that was part of my answer to that question. Now I have a long quote by Albert Moeller. And Albert Moeller's eschatology and my eschatology are not the same. I mean, I, I respect the man greatly. But our eschatological views are not the same, but I really appreciate his statement here. So I want to read this. So a rather lengthy quote. It's on your notes. I think it's on the back. So you can follow as this is being read because I think he goes to the heart of what we're talking about here. <clears throat> So, quoting from Albert Moeller, Dr. Moeller, one of the hardest questions for the early church to figure out is, what's the relationship between Israel and the church? What's the relationship between the Jews who come to know Christ and the Gentiles who come to know salvation in Christ? Are they one people or two people? And of course you have in the New Testament a symphonic answer to that question. It is the truth that the Gentiles have now been grafted on to the promises made to Israel. There is no more powerful demonstration of that than when James begins his letter referring not to Israel, the church. Excuse me, not to Israel, the Israel of old, but the new Israel, the church. By referring to the church as the twelve tribes in the dispersion, James knows to whom he is writing. He's writing to those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just writing to Jews who have come to faith in Jesus and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just writing to Gentiles who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has written to all those who by God's grace have come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are now the Israel of God. That doesn't mean that God does not still have promises made to the nation of Israel under the covenant of old. It does not mean that salvation belongs to the Israel. It does mean, excuse me, that salvation belongs to the Israel of God, the new Israel, made up of all those who by their confession of faith and belief in Christ now find themselves amongst the twelve tribes in the dispersion. The twelve tribes, the new Israel, the people of the new covenant and the dispersion, they're everywhere. Now, the word dispersion is not an innocent word. It's a sinister word in the sense that it means that Christians have been scattered about. We know that even as the word dispersion was used both in the Old and New Testaments, particularly in the New Testament, it refers to the fact that Christians have no homeland. 
Paul will say our citizenship is in heaven. Peter will begin his letter by suggesting that we are aliens residing in places everywhere. So the church is not made up of a national people, not in terms of an earthly, not in terms of earthly kingdoms. The church is not geographically designated. The church is not locally limited in any way. The church is made up of the 12 tribes of new Israel dispersed in the dispersion. In other words, James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, I'm writing to Christians wherever they are found, to Christian churches wherever they have been dispersed. I'm writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to all believers and to all churches everywhere at all times until Jesus, my brother, I would say here, my Lord, comes greeting. Now, any thoughts, questions? Stones, whatever. Okay, I'm not saying that everything in that particular quote is. I would say, oh yeah, but I think in the in the totality of it, yeah, I think it's a very good quote. All right, now we want to go to the next quote by G.K. Bill, and this goes to really kind of the heart of Reformed theology in many ways, covenant theology and Reformed theology. And he is talking about what is called unity theology. Because often the, the dispersion that is made against Reformed theology is, well, you, you, have, you just totally are discrediting God's choice of Israel of old. No, you're not. No, I'm not. And another charge is, well, you just spiritualize everything. You, you just make it mean what you want to. No, we don't. I've tried to work carefully through that over the last three weeks about this address, uh, who wrote it and why, and to whom he wrote it. So this is, this is Bill. God had designed that the nation of Israel be a corporate national Adam who was to represent what true humanity should be like. This discussion has significance for understanding what it means for the predominantly Gentile church to be seen as the constitution of true Israel. Gentiles become a part of Israel not a redeemed people who retain the name Gentiles and coexist alongside, but as a separate people from redeemed ethnic Israel. Converted Gentiles would come to be identified with Israel and Israel's God. Now, in my day, I can certainly remember uh, separate but equal when it comes to education, integration, uh, busing, all kinds of things. Separate but equal. And we go... Well, no, under our Constitution, that's not really the concept. But all men are created equal by their Creator, and they're guaranteed certain rights. A lot of theology will give you a separate, but maybe equal, and sometimes separate, but not equal, concept of Israel and the church. God has two people, He has two plans. Some even go to the, to the extreme and say, some are going to live in heaven and some are going to have the earth. But the two shall never be one. And, you know, we read, like in Ephesians, go, how do you get there? How, how do you get there? Did not Christ tear down that wall of separation? Has not, is not the mystery that the New Testament Paul keeps hitting on, the mystery, the mystery, is not the mystery that God has made of two, one? You go. So how do you how do you get there, and all the implications of that? And so what Bill is writing here is not a separate but equal. 
but it's getting to the concept of unity. So I read on. Right after the converted Gentiles would come to be identified with Israel and Israel's God, as had Gentiles in the past, such as Rahab. You know who Rahab is? But how was she identified? Well, I know even in the New Testament, she's identified as Rahab the harlot. But she is a proselyte. She converts to Judaism. She's not Rahab the Gentile. She's Rahab in the lineage of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. Then he mentions Ruth. Well, Ruth, the book of Ruth, is a wonderful story of redemption. It is such a great analogy and picture of Christ's love for his bride and the church and how this Gentile woman is brought into the fold. And then Uriah, the Hittite. Okay. Um, in the end time period, Gentiles identify with Jesus, who is the true Israel, and become part of the temple in him. That's First Peter that we were reading. That's Ephesians that we could go to. And are circumcised by his death and are made clean in him. In the new age, Jesus as true Adam, Israel, is the only identification tag that transcends Gentiles identification marks or the old nationalistic Israelite identifying marks of the law. So God chose the nation of Israel. Why? Why did he do that? I'm sorry? He pleased him to do so. Was there any practical purposes in it? I don't mean I don't mean was his choice based on them, but were there any practical purposes of him choosing them? Pastor through the Jewish people that he bring forth the Messiah. Through Jewish people he bring forth the Messiah. It's what Christ told the woman, uh, uh, the Samaritan woman. You don't know who you worship, but salvation is of the Jews. It's through the Jewish people. What else? I heard somebody. Paul said the oracles of God given to the Jews. Laws given to Jews. Why was it given to them? Turn to Deuteronomy for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm sorry, say something great. Well, in their eyes, they did keep it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I can back up and start earlier, but Moses, of course, this is his departing sermons to the nation of Israel before he dies. And the book of Deuteronomy is, it means you know, repetition of the law, repeat of the law, second law. Uh, he's rehearsing what God has, has given and said and done for Israel. And he's, uh, he's encouraging, exhorting them to keep the law that God has commanded them. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. But keep what God's given you. But then I, go, I drop down to verse 4. But you hold fast to the Lord your God. Um, let me re- start over. But you who hold fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Why? That you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
For what great nation is there has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has His statutes and rules so righteous and all His law that I have set before you today? In other words, Israel was to be light in a very, very dark world. They were to be image bearers. And they were to be image bearers in the true sense of the word. They were to keep the word of God and thus honor God and shine light to the nations around them would see that light. God is a great God. He is a wonderful God. He's a wise God. Look at these people. But did that happen? No. They failed miserably. God created Adam. And part of Adam's creation is that he would be an he was an image bearer, but he would reflect the glory of God. Did he do that? No. He failed miserably. Is there a true Adam? Is there a true Israel? Yes. Christ is the last Adam. Christ is the true Israel of God. And all who are in Christ are His. They're those children of Abraham. So we go on with this. that um, it's, it's Jesus that's the true Israel. He's the one that's faithful. He's the one that's without sin. He's the one that perfectly obeys. The true Adam. Adam is called Adam, it says in Luke, because he's the Son of God. That's the way the genealogy ends. Who is the true Son of God? Christ. For God so loved the world, what did He do? His only begotten Son. Not, not one that failed, but one who fulfilled the law and honored and glorified God who is the expressed image of His person. Christ is the true Davidic king. And I'm not going to go to all these passages, but God promises David that on his throne there will be of his lineage one who will rule, his kingdom will be forever. And you get to the New Testament, the book of Acts, and you go, oh, that's Christ. It's Christ. He is the true Davidic king. He is the true Israel. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Christ is called the Israel of God. He is the true Israel. So I want you to think with me for a moment. Think in a meta-narrative way. Think again of the big picture. Think analogously with me for just a moment. This isn't just wishful thinking. This is based on Scripture when I say this. But think meta-narrative. Think analogously for a moment. Jesus is the true Israel of God. And he summarizes and repeats Israel's history in his own experience, his work, and he does so in an order to secure to the Lord a people redeemed. And we've already pointed this out in our study in the Gospel of Mark, that he is the true Israel. He is the true Son of God. He is the true Adam. We've already seen that. After Jesus is born, where does he go? Down to Egypt. Think analogously again with me for a moment. Think meta-narrative. After Jesus is born, where does He go? He goes down to Egypt. Does He stay there? No, He comes out of Egypt. 
What does he do when he comes out of Egypt? Later on in his life, he passes through the waters. He's baptized. What happens after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted. But he overcomes that temptation. He doesn't fail like Israel of old. After that, he goes up into the mountain. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And there, what does he deliver? The Word of God. He declares the Word of God to the people. He comes down from the mountain. What does he do? He feeds the people with bread. Even as God fed Israel with manna, Christ comes down, feeds the people with bread. He is exiled at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's exiled. He's away, as it were, from God. God has turned His face upon Him. But He brings restoration in His resurrection. He defeats all the enemies of God. Unlike Israel who didn't clear out the promised land, Christ does. He fulfills it. He succeeds. He secures restoration that was promised by the prophets. And again, I'll not go here. Joel 2, 8. And you read Acts 2, it, 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 there's the fulfillment. Amos 9, 11 through 12. You read Acts 15, there's the fulfillment. He fulfills all of this. So Christians are in Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. The point is, what's bigger than that is Christian. We've already looked at this. They, they, at Antioch, they first called the disciples Jewish Christians. They called them Gentile Christians. They just called them Christians. Singular, well, plural, but meaning one. Unity. So Christians and Christ are the true Israel. Therefore, all believers are of Israel. Therefore, God's promises to Israel are ours through Christ. In Reformed theology, this is referred to as unity theology. It's not replacement theology that sometimes we're accused with. But it means that there's one in Christ. God has made of two one people. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Conclusion, James is writing to early Christian church, many of whom are Jewish, many that are Gentile, but the point is they're Christian. He uses Jewish language and analogies to highlight that the church is the true Israel of God scattered throughout the world. Now, why would he do that? Well, could it be that he's giving hope to Christians who are fleeing for their lives? Just like the promises of the restoration that was promised to Israel. Here it is. Here's your promise. Like Israel of old, we are wanderers and sojourners in this world, but our home is not here. But we're looking for a better country, a better home, a heavenly one, a city that God has prepared for those who love Him. And with that, I close. Any questions, thoughts, or comments? Okay. Next Sunday is Reaffirmation Sunday. So there will be no Bible study. Next Sunday is Reaffirmation Sunday. That's when we come back. We don't just look to the past, but we do remember the past. The church was constituted 15 years ago. And we will reaffirm our um, beliefs. But on that day, we don't have Bible study. We just have morning worship and uh, lunch, and then we're done for the day. So no Bible study after uh, next week.
following week, Pastor John picks up, and he's going to explain all the book of James to you. I got introduced, I hope, and then he's going to pick it up from there. So anything else? Brother Josh, would you close us with prayer, please?